a second. Yeah, 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 I'm coming. Hold on. Ron? What are you doing here? There's something I need to tell you. Are we alone? Quick, grab anything you can. We gotta go. Is there a back door? They're coming. They're coming. Oh god, they're here. Go. Damn this wicked planet. everybody so i got uh, a gentleman that i uh, had been doing some corresponding with uh through email it was a listener to the show that discovered the wicked planet somewhere somehow and i guess is a pretty fairly frequent listener which we want to thank you for um uh, but we got into a conversation about the catholic church and nate here kind of gave me his background uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, and I'm going to let him uh, explain all that to you. Uh, and some of the things that we talked about, he would like to discuss about uh, the Catholic Church. I was very, very excited to finally nail down a little bit of time to get together with him. So, Nate, welcome to the Wicked Planet. Man, thank you. I've been listening to you guys uh, for about... A year and a half now, I discovered you guys. I forget how I discovered you. It was on Spotify, but I started listening to it. And uh, to be honest, Ron, it was your accent. I just love the New England accent. I've always had a soft spot for that, and that really got me into it. So uh, conspiracies and stuff. But but you, and the reason why you say that, I think, is you spent some time in a pre-seminary, or what do you call that? Uh, up up in the lakes region, right? Up on Lake Winnipesaukee. Yeah, yeah. So um, people who live in Center Harbor, New Hampshire, is a small town um, up on the west side, I believe, of Lake Winnipesaukee, and it was an all-boys boarding school. Uh, and one of the last few, uh, what we would call in the Catholic Church, a minor seminary, a seminary for high schoolers discerning the priesthood, I'd always wanted to be a priest since I was probably about the age of five. And so it was a, a natural thing for me to go up to the seminary. Uh, the interesting thing about the seminary, the minor seminary, excuse me, was that it was attached to a religious order known as the Legionaries of Christ. Some of people out there might know them. Some people might not. Uh, the best way I can describe them is they're kind of similar to the Jesuits, except they're not like the Jesuits are now. And I can explain that a little later. It's a little nuanced, but, um, it's a religious order. So effectively I was living as a monk, not so much in high school In high school, we had a little more leeway, but then, uh, right after high school, I rolled right into what's called a novitiate. 
and I was a novice for two years. And then I was a, what we call a humanist because they, they label things by stages of formation. And so I was a humanist for another year and a half about. And in that time I was living like what you would imagine a monk would live like waking up at all hours of the day. We were doing prayers, spent most of my time in the chapel. But when I wasn't in the chapel, we were learning uh, the religious congregation. That's the official name the church gives. It's not an order. It's a congregation uh, that I was a part of the Legionaries of Christ. They, their function or their mission or their charism, depending on how you want to skew it, uh, is about service for laity through preaching and through education. So they, they have a 12 years of formation before you even get to the priesthood. So in that time, I was studying Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Spanish because it's a Mexican order, actually. So Spanish is the language that they typically communicate in. So I was studying all those languages and then, of course, theology upon theology upon theology. And then even outside of that, we were studying scriptures constantly. So I became very attuned with that. And then eventually I discerned it wasn't my vocation. Well, I didn't discern. God discerned. I was in the chapel one day praying and uh, I felt like a, a little tap on the shoulder almost that God said, you know, was inviting me to leave. And I was kind of upset because I basically dedicated my whole life up until that point, you know, so I was 19 to, to being a priest. And I was like, I don't know anything about girls. I never was <laughs> interested in girls. Why, why, why did you do this to me? <laughs> but yeah. And then outside of that, when I left the Legion, I went back home and I still kind of wanted to study. So I went down to a school in Florida and started studying uh, theology. So yeah, that's, that's sort of where I cut my teeth in, uh, in really falling in love with my church and the deep richness and its theology and started understanding and, and sort of peeling away a lot of things uh, about the church that I, I didn't know before. So you're saying that this congregation that you were a member were uh, a member of was the Legionnaires of Christ? Yeah, the Legionaries of Christ. Oh, uh, Legionaries, and, okay. Yeah, and uh, they have some dicey history. Uh, people might know them inside the church. People would might know them because uh, actually the the founder of the church, the Legion, had a scandal, actually, a pretty big scandal. He was siring children, and he had some spouses in other countries, and there was also some kitty diddling for lack of better terminology. But so he, he wasn't the greatest of persons, but uh, the Legion itself was still doing tremendous good in the church. And of course the church is not her leaders. The church is a separate entity, the bride of Christ. And, you know, so she does good things. And within that, of course the congregation was doing great things. And I saw that I entered knowing what the, the founder of the Legion had done but I know that also colors some people's images of the Legionaries of Christ. Well, you know, Nate, we all hear about, you know, how it, how everybody, you know, when they talk about the Catholic Church, right? Uh, now, everything that you're always going to hear is the uh, pedophilia thing, right? Uh, oh, yeah. And, and everything like that, which I think 
obviously, for obvious reasons, it sheds a bad light on the Catholic Church, right? And Catholicism oh, yeah. as a whole. I mean, um, yeah. But so, so I'm assuming that you grew up in the Catholic Church. Yep, cradle Catholic uh, from a big Catholic family. I'm one of nine children, so I'm the oldest boy, but I'm not the oldest. I've got two older sisters. But yeah, I grew up Catholic and kind of more conservative Catholic. Uh, so I'm, I guess there's some terminology out there for different kinds of Catholics, but people might put me into the what people would call the rad trad group or the radical traditional Catholic group, but I'm not really a radical traditionalist. I just hold to the traditional Catholic faith, which stems from controversies surrounding the second Vatican council of the Catholic church. And, uh, but yeah, I, I grew up Catholic, uh, always sort of, uh, growing deeper in my faith. Uh, it's funny you mentioned in, in the email, not to, to get sidetracked, but you mentioned in the email uh, about Passover tonight, and uh, you immediately reminded me of um, a practice that I don't recommend people do, but that my mom, for whatever reason, had decided. Uh, for for several years in my childhood, my mom, we celebrated the Passover meal, but the way the, the Jews celebrate it, which technically is uh, sacrilegious and uh, heretical for Catholics to be, because it's technically participating in another religion's ritual forms, which is not what you as a Catholic are supposed to do. But I don't know why. It's it just, you reminded me of that and it made me laugh thinking about my mom. And then later on in life, I had to go back to my mom and said, you know, mom, I really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about that, Nate, because, I mean, this is Holy Week, right? I mean, yes. we have Good Friday. Yes. Good Friday is this Friday, obviously, which signifies the day of Christ's crucifixion, uh, crucifixion correct? And then, of yep. course, Easter would be the day of his resurrection, right? Uh, yeah. So, but I, but I was doing a lot of reading uh, on about Passover, and, and I've been interested in Passover, like you know, other years, uh, because I have many Jewish friends, and uh, and I know that you know uh, one of my friends, his family is, uh, I wouldn't call them devout, but they definitely adhere to certain religious holidays or religious. Traditions, I guess traditions is what I mean yeah. to say. And, uh, and, of course, so Passover started tonight, right? I think at 7.30 Eastern time or whatever, and it goes for a week. Yes. Uh, but, I, but I was also finding that a lot of Christians, now not necessarily Catholics, but a lot of Christians also celebrate the Passover. And that's why I asked you about that, because uh, interesting conversation I had with a friend of mine once, and I was trying to explain to her that all Catholics are Christian, but not all Christians are Catholic. And she had a hard time wrapping her head around that until I finally said, no, Catholicism has its version of Christianity. And then you have your other churches that have their version of Christianity. Now, the Catholic Church or the Romans are the first ones to adopt Christianity, correct? And this is where the uh, the the Pope comes from, and uh, Vatican City, and all this that's located in Rome. 
So yeah. Uh, so so when the Catholic, uh, I, I keep saying that wrong. When the Romans adopted Christianity, that was virtually the birth of the Catholic Church. Correct. Sort of, uh, and sort of not. So. As Catholics, we trace our lineage straight back to the 12 apostles, right? And and really, all Christians could, technically. Um, there's a couple different terminologies. And, yeah, I get into the discussion, too, uh, about um, a lot of Christians seem to not understand that Catholics are also Christian when the fundamental aspects of being Christian is that you have to believe in Christ, his death and resurrection, and you also have to believe in the triune God of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that Christ is the Son, member of that. And that those are the two real fundamentals of, of Christianity. You have to believe those two things. And the Catholic Church, I oftentimes explain to people, uh, you know, the Church has changed its terminology over the years. It's softened it. You know, so with Martin Luther, when he first separated from uh, Rome, or even Henry VIII, when he first separated, we, the church used to lovingly refer to them as heretical separated sects of the church. And uh, we've since changed our language to calling them separated brethren. But, yeah. So when you say Henry VIII, so Henry VIII uh, is the one that started the Church of England. Am I correct on that? Yes, yes. And he was the first head of the Church of England. The first head of the Church of England in where they took whatever Bible and turned it into, or like, let's just say the King James version of the Bible was the Bible that the Church of England adopted as their own. So that does, so that, that Bible is version is, is different, different from, other versions of the Bible, right? So in Catholicism, so, you have what, how does that work in, in Catholicism with, with that? I know that's probably a, a long answer to a short question. That, yeah, that's a, that's a whole side answer. So it's interesting you bring that up. So the church of England initially, um, when it, it's, it's branched off, it was over. Basically the fundamental problem was King Henry the eighth, for whatever reason, uh, couldn't get a male heir and he wanted one. He didn't want a female heir, right? His daughter, Queen Elizabeth the first eventually became his successor, but he wanted to divorce his wife and then marry again. So he could get a male heir because he was blaming on his wife for whatever reason. And the whole time. And he had the right to, yeah. And he had the right to the church because in the Catholic faith, you know, we don't, really believe in divorce. And so it's this whole process called an annulment. You have to go through, you have to get approvals. Uh, you have to prove from a canonical standpoint and canon is like canon law in the church. You have to prove that there was no marriage in the first place for it to not be sacramentally valid, you know, because we take our sacraments very seriously. There's only seven of them, and one of them is, is marriage. So anyway, King Henry VIII had a beef with that and he wanted to, do his thing. And the only way he could figure out to get around it was to form his own church. Uh, and so he separated, but he was very fond of the theology of the church. So the, the Anglicans are actually the closest thing you can get to the Catholic church in the West without being a Catholic church. 
they've since deviated a lot, but actually um, certain sects, and I don't know the exact number, but uh, they're a certain high Anglican because they have their own branches, but one of them is called the high Anglicans. Certain high Anglican sects have valid sacraments in the eyes of the church because they are so faithful to the rest of the teachings of the church. It's kind of confusing the way that works, but yeah, uh, the, the Bible aspect that actually came from Martin Luther. And then later on the Anglicans adopted that and the Bible itself. It's interesting. Um, this is one of those aspects when I talk to people and argue with them a little bit or, or discuss, don't argue, but discuss with them about the, the Bible. The, the reason why Martin Luther, Martin Luther, took seven books out of the Old Testament. So he didn't remove any of the New Testament, just seven books of the Old Testament. The reason why he removed them was because the oldest versions of those texts at the time were in Greek and not Hebrew. And his argument was, well, if Hebrew was the language of the Jews and they were doing this in the Old Testament, then we can only trust that the Spirit was writing it in the Hebrew. And since then, we have found older texts via the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that are include those seven texts and the books of Enoch, one and two, uh, that are older than the previous thought. So I, I tell people sometimes jokingly that they're, they're more Luther than Luther was as far as the historicity of that is concerned. So, Nate, when you're talking about Martin Luther, was that the Protestant Reformation or is that something different? Now, Martin Luther is is what is the Lutheran Church, correct? Yes, yes. He founded initially the Lutheran Church and then that branched off into all sorts of Protestantisms, yeah. But that that is the Protestant Reformation that was... um, that was him, and he he's the one who's kind of responsible for getting the Bible on the printing press, too. So uh, we have him to thank for that. And and his reasons for leaving the church were justifiable in some degrees. The, the theology is complex. A lot of people take it from the very rudimentary understanding that he was selling, or he was angry because the church was selling uh, indulgences, which is basically like, years off of purgatory cards, right? And as Catholic, we believe there's a heaven, there's a hell, and then there's this in-between space called a purgatory where you go to to sort of finish up any sort of penitent potentialness uh, for, to make up for any sins that you committed on earth that you didn't have time to repent of, right? And so at the time, the church was, in certain areas, selling indulgences, which is, it's simony, which is a, uh, basically like selling blessed things, which you're not supposed to do. It's a big no-no in the church. And in, he was angry ca- about that and about ca- a bunch of other things. In the Catholic church. In the Catholic church, okay. yes. Yeah. And in orthodoxy too. So we were talking about the origins of the, the church as a whole. And the word Catholic wasn't used for the church until I think the year 180 A.D., I, I believe, I, I may be wrong, but it wasn't used for that. And and the word Catholic means universal, right? So we're talking about a universal church. And so at the time, there wasn't these separate, you know, churches. It was all, everyone was a Christian. Everyone was a believer in Jesus Christ, but they all celebrated uh, what people might think of as the, the Catholic mass at the time. And, Everyone was that. So separation didn't really happen until 
the Great Schism was sort of the first separation where Orthodoxy separated from Catholicism, and that's its own thing because as Catholics, we actually recognize the Church. Rome, the Vatican, recognizes all of the sacraments and theology of Orthodoxy. So if I'm ever in a place where there's no Roman Catholic Church and I can't attend a Mass for whatever reason, I can go to an Orthodox Church and receive communion there, and it will be completely valid for me. Okay, so uh, they're so, what we refer to as a schismatic church. Let me ask you a question. So, uh, we've heard of uh, like in the city of Concord, which is which is the closest city to me. There is a very large Greek community there, and their church is the Greek Orthodox Church. And then yes. you and then you have the Russian Orthodox Church. So what you're saying is Orthodox churches are recognized by Catholicism. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're recognized by Catholicism uh, down to their priesthood. Like we, we hold as all, all their things is valid. The only thing that separates them from us is that they don't recognize the Pope as the head of their church. Right. So the successor of Peter is not recognized by them. And that goes back to complex issue of nuance down to one word uh, in Latin, filioque, which means and the son. I won't get into it. It's very, it's complicated. I actually agree with orthodoxy on this, but um, you do bring up an interesting point there when you talk about Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. When people think of a Catholic, they think of Roman Catholic, right? That's the word people use. The technical term would be a Latin Catholic. And the reason why I bring that up is because in the Catholic Church, there's actually lots of churches within it. So I married a beautiful woman um, who is a Byzantine Catholic, which they trace their lineage back to Constantinople, which was at the time Byzantium or in Byzantium. And so their liturgy is actually identical to what you would call a Greek Orthodox liturgy. So their mass is entirely different than a Latin mass. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because it goes back to that term universal, because the church isn't comprised of just the Latin Catholic, even though the Latin Catholic or the Roman Catholic is the biggest segment. There's actually 26 different Catholic churches and a majority of them are Eastern Catholic, which would be more closely resembled to Orthodoxy. And uh, I'm actually, I've actually in the process of switching to become an Eastern Catholic. I tend to identify more with their theology, not to blow your mind or (laughs) add more confusion to the mess. (laughs) No, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to get together with you, and and I've said this many times on the show, is uh, I was not raised to be religious, like, at all. Uh, And there's a couple of reasons for that. Now, not to say that religion doesn't interest me, because I find it extremely interesting. All different types of religion, to me, are extremely interesting. And I find that as I get older, I am even more interested in learning about it, right? No no reasons, no, you know, I, oh, I need to, you know, get right with God because of X, Y, Z. You know, nothing like that. I just, I had, and I wanted to talk to you about this. And we're just going to get off track a little bit here. 
That's fine. Probably about five or six years ago, right around Christmas, I had this very, very vivid dream. And in my dream, some entity or person or something was talking to me. Like uh, what we would consider like some type of download in your sleep, right? Not in a dream in a sense where, you know, I could see things. It was something that I heard. Well, like a locution. I guess. I don't know what that is. (laughs) We'll get into that after. But during this dream, this voice told me, you are to become a Catholic. No, No reason for that. I wasn't reading about Catholicism anything like that it was just very profound so much so that at christmas dinner i was talking to my brother-in-law and telling him about it and he was like well i know somebody that can make that happen you know and i said well i'll let you know and i never acted on it but it's still something i think about all the time now i know there's a lot of Catholic Church gets a lot of bad press, you know, and, and rightfully so, right? I mean, you've yes, ta- you, you have talked about that, but it's yeah. just like it's just like you can't group everybody into one corral based on the actions of just a few. Now, I know in the case of the Catholic yeah. Church, it's not just a few; it seems to be kind of like a running thing. Uh, which is another reason why I wanted to talk to you because you kind of wanted to set that record straight a little bit or maybe explain it a little bit better because we have heard, I mean, especially in Boston, when that, I want to say, Father, I want to say his name was Gagan, who finally got arrested and he was, uh, he ran one of the big churches down in Boston. And come to find out, he was sexually assaulting young boys. And as yeah. he, and as these men got older, while well, they wanted retribution, right? Well, he yeah. did. He did end up getting arrested for it and tried and convicted and sent to prison. Well, he didn't last very long in prison. They killed him. They killed him in prison. Yeah. But I mean, I don't want to shed a bad light on Catholicism at all. That's not what. That's not why I have you here. <laughs> I just I just think that it would be interesting to hear from somebody that's a devout Catholic like yourself to kind of maybe come on and educate some of the listeners and some of the people that are very anti-Catholic. And we know yeah. there's a lot of that in the United States going all the way back yeah. to all the way back to the inception of the Ku Klux Klan and these other white supremacist groups. Right. Yeah, it, even it, before then too, with uh, there were some issues. You could all the way, go all the way back to the um, the war for independence with some issues that the English and then the colonies were having with uh, Spanish Florida. There was there was some uh, they were attempting to wipe out you know some of the Indian tribes down there because they were Catholic. They didn't like that at all. No, you bring up a, a valid point, and it is a justifiable anger. I look at it, and I talk to Catholics, and they get all defensive and. I got to empathize with people, especially given the the value. On the one hand, the percentage of priests who did it is actually a very small number of priests. It's about, I think I'm being on the generous side, but I think it's about 8% of priests were perpetrators of this atrocity. And 
you know, that pales in comparison. Of course, if you look at the public school system, for example, I think it's something like 20% of, of, of these cases are, are in the school system, teachers and stuff, not to scare anyone about the school system and not to say that, you know, it's you any, talk- wor- any less worse than the Catholic church, but Nate, hold on. Are you talking about the Catholic school system or the school systems in general? The I'm just talking about the public school system in general. Okay. Uh, a lot of pedophilia happens out there that people, it's just not reported on, right? The media is going to choose its target and it's going to make the loudest noise about that, right? And so that's what we hear about, right? And these scandals did happen and they were horrendous. And a part of the reason why they are so much more horrendous than, say, a gym teacher right, who's a, a pedophile, is because of the weight of the cloth, you could say, the, the weight of the priesthood. Here's this person who's supposed to be this moral paragon that we're supposed to look up to, and he is not only crossed the line, but he's crossed the line at, at, at the most sensitive level, right? Christ said, if anyone should hurt one of these little ones, let a millstone be thrown around his neck and he'd be put into the sea. You know, so it, it it's horrendous. And then that we have so much trust and stuff, it, it should have not happened. And it did. And the church has gotten better. If you look at most of the cases, they're all older cases, you know, with people who are adults now, there are no new cases really coming out of the church. And this can go now more into a, not a conspiratorial way, but a conspiracy against the church, these real verifiable things that happened. One of the things that happened was, about the 1950s, 1940s, uh, this communist lady by the name of Bella Dodd uh, was working with American communist movement who was also working with Russia. And they were actively putting in seminarians. They were planting seminarians into these seminaries who were homosexuals, who were people who shouldn't have been in the seminary in the first place. And those seminarians, of course, grew up in the church became priests and then perpetrated these atrocities on, on young people uh, across the churches in America and around the world. And they probably shouldn't even have been priests in the first place. It's really interesting that that happened. So Nate, that is, that is very interesting because we talk a lot of the Marxist communist socialist indoctrination in schools in universities in corporations and their goal in my opinion is to degrade any church to get people to turn away from religion to turn away from god turn away from jesus or what have you and to push their communist agenda now that would make perfect sense and talk about a long-term play. Yeah, yeah, it's a com- long play. For communists to come in, put people in the seminaries that they know could possibly do this later down the road, or told them this is what you're going to do down the road to cast yeah. to cast a dark cloud over the Catholic Church as a whole. Yeah, and, that, and, and, just, and knowing what we know, how this how this system works, the Marxist communist takeover that makes yeah. absolutely perfect sense. Yeah, and so and that's part of the reason why I wanted to come on is uh, 
I feel like, cause I've been involved in this sort of, you could call it the conspiracy community ever since I was in high school. I, I started off listening to, um, oh, what's his name? The crazy guy. He talks like this all the time. Alex, uh, Alex Jones. Alex Jones. There you go. Yeah. I started off with Alex Jones, mostly just out of pure entertainment. I always liked the idea, like entertaining the ideas. Um, I always found them sort of interesting. I'm a student of history. So some of the historical stuff I would always look into and some of it was true and stuff. And I wasn't really turned on to the conspiracy world hardcore until, well, until COVID. And then I sort of had an awakening. It was like, Oh my gosh, there is more truth to this than not. And that's sort of when I started looking at my own church because I would hear people saying things about my church. I'm like, well, that's not true. Where are they getting their history from? Because I always felt that if anything, people should be working or looking to the Catholic church or not looking to, but like working with the Catholic church. Like we have a lot of stuff as Catholics that we could bring to the table. And I started to realize that there's an attack on both sides, uh, you know, which is sort of why I was like confused because you'd think that in the conspiracy world, people sort of rally around the, the ostracized, right. And, and Catholics are ostracized. Now we have Catholic president, Joe Biden, and people will look to that and say, oh, no, the, the Catholics in the mainstream, they're all good. But if you actually break it down, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, traditional Catholics, um, Catholicism, the, the root of Catholicism is under heavy attack. Uh, recently, the, the government, in a, no, it was an FBI document. In an FBI document, which they have since sort of corrected, but not really, said that people who attended the traditional Latin mass and who, you know, had rosaries in their car or rosaries, um, which is like a a necklace made out of beads. It's, Uh it's five sets of 10 beads with a crucifix on it. Uh, people who have those things should be labeled as potential terrorists in this country, right? A threat to the nation. And that's just one aspect. Another aspect was that the the church or excuse me another aspect in the church right now that's actually happening in this country my state washington state has just passed this law is that they are now going to violate the sacramental seal of confession which means that if there's some sort of murder case or whatever the state can then go and bring a priest to the you know to give a, a deposition and then say what they heard in confession, which is a big no-no in the Catholic church In the Catholic church, the sacramental seal of confession is very serious that, to the point where a priest is excommunicated. If he breaks that seal, mm-hmm. because we believe that when God hears your confession, right? Cause it's not the priest who hears your confession. It's God through the priest hearing your confession. Once it's forgiven, God forgets. And you don't talk about that. That is between you and God. And that's it. And so for the state to say, no, 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 we're going to require now that priests will be able to participate in, you know, court cases or whatever. That's not okay. That that's a direct violation of my religious freedom. That, now you might argue, well, what about this, that, or the other, but at the end of the day, it's hearsay at best for evidence. Right. You know, that's interesting. Uh, a couple of things to touch on. I did remember reading recently how the FBI, the whole deal with the rosary, with the considering them that they could possibly be domestic terrorists. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were calling it a, a weapon, which I, is funny because the church also calls it a weapon, but for spiritual warfare. Anyway, it's, it's a weapon against Satan. Yeah. So yeah. when I saw that at first, I thought it was a joke. And, then, no, I it's started, very real. and then I started reading into it. I'm going, oh, my God, this is real. Like they actually think. Like I used to date a Greek girl years ago, and and her parents were awesome. And her dad and I would sit and watch hockey together. He was a big Boston Bruins fan. And he would sit in his Lazy Boy, and he had his rosary with him. Now, that's Greek Orthodox, right? So they they use rosary also. And uh, and I always thought it was kind of cool, right? And so he explained to me, you know, how it worked and what it was. But... But the other uh, the other thing is is when you go into a confessional. Now I've never done that. Obviously, I'm not Catholic or Orthodox. When you go into a confessional, like that's not supposed to go any further than that. And I can yes. actually remember even movies that were like murder mystery type movies where they knew the priest knew the answer. And no matter what angle they tried to get the priest to talk and to tell them, he refused to do it. Just like, just like uh, somebody not divulging, like a journalist not divulging who their sources are. Right? That's actually yeah. that's actually protected in the Constitution, right? Exactly. So, so I mean, once you go into confession and you confess your sins to God through the priest. That's almost like a lawyer's, like... Yeah, attorney-client privilege. Exactly. Or with your doctor, right? I mean, I mean, it's the same thing. So the state of Washington yeah. is, is going to act a law to where the priest would be obligated to tell Yeah, them. he'll attempt to. I would hope that priests would just go to prison instead of abide to that law. And, and Washington State is not the only state. Uh, I believe there are 12 states, including... California, uh, I wish I knew the list off the top of my head, but I believe California, I think New York, I think the the District of Columbia, to name a few, are all have sort of these laws that they have been proposed recently. And this is just one small thing. But yeah, it's a it's a big deal in the Catholic Church that you don't do that. Because it, again, and that argument too was being used that, well, what about a client, you know, client attorney privilege? Would this because that's the other aspect too that you don't think about is like, okay, so if we can violate the, the Catholic church's rule on uh, the sacrament of confession, then why can't we violate, you know, attorney client privilege? Why can't we violate, you know, the, the doctor's HIPAA rules? Why can't we violate the, the source rules or even like with priests when they have, or not priests, excuse me, police officers, when they have an, an informant inf- informant. Yeah the informant is protected under the court of law. So it, it sort of opens up a whole can of worms in and of itself. But the, yeah, for the, the state to do that, it, it's a, it's appalling. And so it's sort of these little things that sort of ticked up over time that made me think, well, why do I hear this so much from the, the conspiracy community? And I realize, you know, after listening to some people, um, you know, some good podcasts that I really, really enjoy have said some things and I don't know, maybe they were hurt by the Catholic church. That happens a lot. People were, you know, a lot of people were disenfranchised because of the scandals and justifiably so. But a lot of it comes down to these 
ideas and understandings of the church around the papacy and the power. Cause obviously there's a lot of power in the church, a lot of power. And we, we're talking about 2000 years of history, right? 2000 years of apostolic succession, right? All the bishops around the world can trace their lineage back to one of the 12 apostles, right? So a, a lot of history and a lot of things that went really wrong and a lot of things that went really right. And a lot of things that people are confused about, uh, take the crusades, for example, there are th- three crusades. The first three crusades are really good. The fourth crusade, horrible. They sacked Constantinople, which was Orthodox Christianity at the time. That's one of the things that Orthodox Christians are really, really mad about. Actually, the fourth crusade was not justified. The first three crusades were a response because Islam was literally knocking on the doors of Europe. It was spreading from Turkey into um, Greece and, and into the, the Balkans there. And it was a real problem. The, the European powers were really worried because they saw the horrendous atrocities that it was doing to Christianity in the Middle East. And so the, the first three crusades were a response to that. But our history books today will just tell you that, oh, it was just Catholic Church being evil and greedy, and the crusaders were all evil and greedy, and then they cite the Knights Templar, which were evil and greedy. The Knights Templar were not sanctioned by the church. They sort of, like, stole that identity. Uh, lots of things like that that were misrepresented or, or miswritten about in history or things that the Spanish did, right? You think about uh, Pizarro in South America, where he just basically wiped out the Incas for the sake of gold. But because he did that, then everyone thinks, well, the Spanish conquistadors are all bad. When really the story is very different. For example, if Cortez hadn't have gone to Mexico, the, I forget the the study that was done, but uh, a professor basically did a, a huge study of of the Aztec sacrifice level, right? Because uh, they were sacrificing people daily to the sun god. If they had continued on that trajectory, if Cortez hadn't have come, the Aztecs people would have been wiped out anyway within three years. So lots of things like that, that just sort of were not taught in our classes that we could be taught. And this goes back to, Actually, it ties back to to Belladad, what happened in our seminaries, the Catholic Church, right, in the 1940s, what I was talking about earlier, which then uh, goes back to, you know, you go back in time a little bit to the Freemasons, who were founded in 17, I think they were founded in 1779, 1778, something like that. The Freemasons? Yeah, the Freemasons. I believe that that's where their official founding was. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was. It was earlier. It was in the seven early seventeen hundreds, I believe. All right, Nate, you brought up the Templars. So what you're saying is that the Templars were not sanctioned by the Catholic Church, but the Templars were allegedly their cover story was to guard pilgrims while they were on their pilgrimage to go back to the Holy Land. Correct. And and how yeah. the, and how the Templars invented what we know today as the modern banking system, so that yes. these pilgrims wouldn't have valuables on them that could be raided during their pilgrimage. Now, here's another thing that the Catholic Church gets a bad rap for. Again, 
justifiably so, as far as we know whether history is 100% accurate or told in a different way. But this is why Friday the 13th is supposed to be a really bad luck day, right? So I know you know a little bit about that, but and we don't have to get too deep into it, but it was the Pope ordered all the Templars to be rounded up and executed, correct? Because yes. Because allegedly the Templars had discovered something in the temple that, according to the Catholics, if the world discovered that, that Catholicism or maybe Christianity even as a whole would be destroyed. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar with that. And uh, it's interesting you bring that up because the official story, according to the church documentation, is that in the what I would call the real story is that the Knights Templar had actually started living a life of dissipation. So they were never officially sanctioned by the church. The church approved of their mission, right, of of protecting them. Ostensibly, that's what they did. It wasn't until the later crusades that they started, you know, holding land and hoarding treasures, right? And because uh, that was one of their missions, right, was that a, a, a person would go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and so then they would go to the Knights Templar, and they would give them their money, right? The inception of the banking system you mentioned, right? They would give them their money to holding, and then the Knights Templar would sort of give them uh, credits, we'll say, and then they would go to the Holy Land and use these credits and then come back and collect whatever interest they had in their money and whatnot. But the Knights Templar had started changing the way that they were doing things and sort of uh, started committing extortion against these people. They, and were, they were extorting things from the pilgrims. And I exactly. And, and what also came to came to light to me was we're not really sure that the Templars weren't actually like getting rid of some of these pilgrims so that they could loot what the pilgrims had entrusted into them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would be a perfect, it would be a perfect scam. No. And it was Uh, another thing that, and this is the real thing that was uncovered. Right. Um, is that the, the Knights Templar were actually, uh, partially, uh, not partially, but, uh, they're founded by, uh, Jews. They were, they were not Catholic. Um, and so this is something that it's one of those little known history facts, right? And this sort of goes back to this bigger conspiracy that's been going on really since the time of Christ. But, uh, and that was the big issue. That's why the church ordered that the, the Templar be rounded up and an inquisition be done uh, to investigate them. Right. And that's where the Friday the 13th came from. Right. And the church wasn't successful. And we know that because the Knights Templar would eventually go on to sort of be the, the founding stones, the founding brethren for the Freemasons. An interesting thing that I uh, discovered that in high school, I had a friend of mine uh, that lived, uh, not, lived like right next to the school, the high school. And he used to tell me about this, these classes he had to go to that was called Dimalay. And, of course, at the time, I don't know anything what Demolay is. I knew nothing about Masons or the Catholic Church. Nothing. Right? But later in life, like, like I reached out to him a few years ago, and he 
did that whole Demolay thing, and now he's way up in the Masons. So this Demolay thing is like is like the catechism, right, for kids that are going to go on to be high level Masons. Well, wasn't Demolay the name of one of the high in the hierarchy of the Templars? Wasn't that a Demolay? Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, he was. Uh... I believe he was a Venetian Italian, which again goes back to the Jews. Not, not the point. Now, let me just clarify. I know people get their hackles up when you talk about the Jews. When I talk about the Jews, and I make this clear to a lot of people, I'm not talking about the Jewish people or people who are practitioners of Judaism. I'm talking about the leadership within Judaism. It's like when we talk about the Chinese, right? We say, oh, China did blank. We're not talking about the people who live in Shangshu, China. We're talking about the people who all work for the, the leadership in China. Because the people who work at the, the low level, they're they're victims of, of what the place is, right? Sure. We talk about that same think, thing with Iranians. When we yeah. talk about the Iranian people versus versus their government, right? Same idea. Yeah, exactly. And and so the same thing I ascribe to, to the Jews, and this is sort of that, for me, the connecting piece that I think a lot of people are, are missing, that the Catholic Church used to talk about a lot and hasn't talked about so much since the Second Vatican Council, since we were, I believe, infiltrated by Freemasonry. And that's its own story. But the Jews sort of were not really able to do banking in Europe until the Knights Templar, and that sort of blew the door open for them, and that made it sort of okay in the eyes of the church, even though technically it's not okay, because the church at the time sort of considered all banking a form of extortionism, right? Because anytime you're lending out money and then you're collecting interest, that's a form of extortionism, if you think about it, because you're taking more than what was lent, right? And Nate, that's what we on the show call the Babylonian money magic, it is, is. That's is exactly where, what that is. Is where the Jewish loan out, say, a dollar. We'll just call them dollars. Yep. But you got to pay them back a dollar plus 50 cents. Yeah, right? exactly. That is actually supposed to be sinful. Am I correct? It is a sin. Yes, it is a sin. Unfortunately, as a consequence of the modern banking system, the Catholics just have to deal with it. Now, I don't know the, the rules. I don't know. I know many Catholic bankers, but I've never talked about their personal confessions or anything like that. But yeah, and it's interesting you bring up Babylonian money magic because I love that you use that terminology because it goes back to the heart of the of the history of the church, back down to the history of the church pre-Jesus, right? So if you go back before Jesus, you have this period of time called the Babylonian exile, right? And during that time, the Jews who were exiled from Jerusalem were in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and then under Nebuchadnezzar's son. But that's where you get a lot of these artifacts left over in Judaism that didn't really come forward again until around the time of Christ and definitely after the time of Christ, uh, definitely after the year 70 AD when uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and uh, there was this deviation, right? So the Jews are dependent. They used to have sacrifices every year. They would, and that's where you get the term scapegoat from, for example, is when the Jews would offer a scapegoat in reparation for their own sins. They would literally sacrifice a goat. 
or a sheep or two doves. And even it's referenced in the Bible all the time. Sacrifice was a huge portion. And the, the tribe of Levite was a huge part of Judaism. And they had this other part that was sort of spiritualistic that drew on first from the Canaanites a little bit, and then later on from the Babylonians, who was basically a, a version of Canaanite um, because the, the Baal worship and the Moloch worship sort of came from the Canaanite tradition then made its way into through Sumerian, the Sumerians into Babylon and so on and so forth. But you don't really see that come out until after Christ when you lose the temple and then the tribe of Levite has no purpose. You don't have any priests anymore because there's no temple and you have this sect of Judaism suddenly spring up. That's this rabbinical Judaism. It's basically the Pharisees, right? Who were the teachers and the educators, the scribes and the Pharisees who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah or the Messiah, as they would say. So they start using alternative scriptures other than the, the Pentateuch or what we would know as the old Testament. And they start using what's called the Talmud and have this Talmudic Judaism. And that's where the, the Babylonian money magic sort of comes from too, is, is this, these, these things that they took from Babylon and they adopted to their own religion. And so I would argue that, I've talked to my friends about this and some people get mad when I say this, but I would argue that Judaism today is not the Judaism of Christ's time. I think the Jews ended when Christ came and any Judaism that sort of followed after is a new religion, so to speak. I know it's a radical statement to say, but Hey, this is the wicked planet. Actually, exactly. (laughs) Our anonymous Sean talks something very similar to that. Now, we talk a lot about the Kazarian Empire, right? And, and and I don't think we're going to have time to get into that tonight, but he tells about how the Jews that came out of Babylon were not the true Hebrews. No, they were not. So so you're in agreement with that. So uh, yeah. an argument can be made that a lot of your Western European Jews are not actually Hebrews at all. I mean, the more we the no, more we the more we not. the more we talk and the more we get together and the more discussions we have, I think that will really enlighten a lot of our listeners that are interested in the subject of just say the Kazarian Jews, right? Uh, because the Kazarians adopted Judaism as their state religion. And yeah. then, and then, yeah. and of course, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that are uh, tied into this that the Kazarians became the Ashkenazi Jews. Well, there's a lot of people say that that's not true, and uh, and and there's a lot of arguments on both sides. <laughs> However, from what I read, now I'm not a biblical scholar, but from what I read or what I've read in a lot of the research that I've done, is that that is pretty much how it went that the Ashkenazi yeah. Jews came out of out of Kazaria. But uh, again, yeah. a subject for another show, like for sure. But Anonymous Sean has always said that there was only two tribes of actual Hebrews that, that went to what is now Israel or went to Jerusalem. 
And one of them, I want to say, was the tribe of Levi. And then what was the other one? The tribe of, the tribe of Judah, I believe. Yep. It was um, the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah were spared from the Babylonian exile. Right. Because the tribe of Judah, of course, bears the monarchy of the the Jews, which then that's where the lineage of Christ comes from, right? He is the Lion of Judah. And, of course, you know, he had to be related to David, who is of the tribe of Judah. And then the, the Levites, who were faithful servants and priests. And in a way, sort of, they are also, they can sort of trace their lineage back to Melchizedek. That's, again, we can talk about another time. But, yeah, yeah, those were the two tribes. Okay, yeah, so so let's save a little bit of that for a future conversation. Uh, I'd like to get back to the Babylonian money magic and how Jesus went. Now, wasn't it Jesus went into the temple, and this is when he first started causing a lot of trouble, which got him into trouble with the hierarchy Jews, and they actually went to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate, and said, you got to do something about this guy, he's causing trouble. Now, he went there, and he turned over what they called the money-changing tables. And the money-changing tables, from what I feel, were the loan shark. It was at the beginning of the end for Jesus as far as his natural (laughs) life was concerned. So the the writings we have about Jesus, right, or his public ministry, what we refer to is is a three-year period, right, from the age of 30 to the age of 33. And... I want to say that in each of those years, he went up to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover. And I want to say it was his second time in Jerusalem that he did that. It might have been his first time. But he went in there and he starts turning over the money tables because, you know, you had these people exchanging money for the, the temple money, right? Temple had its own coinage. And you couldn't use foreign currencies, right? Because that would be sacrilegious, so to speak. And yeah, and and actually it's interesting because you also, in that sort of Christ, shortly after that, gives his teaching on taxes, so to speak, right? When you have this really interesting interaction where uh, the Pharisees come up to him afterwards, after he's, you know, all gung-ho thrown the the tables over and he says he made a a rope into a whip and started whipping people. It's kind of an interesting story to think about, but uh, the Pharisees come up to him afterwards and they, they ask him, so should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, he's not our King, God's our King and you know, all this, that and the other. And, and he says, give me a coin. And they give him a coin and he says, whose face is that on the coin? And they say, Oh, that's Caesar. And he's like, well then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And I've always, I've thought about that a lot because I believe that we shouldn't pay most of our taxes, but then I'm conflicted by that story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> taxes, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a tough one too, because a lot, I think a lot of people have a lot of problems with the taxes that we pay. And yeah. uh, Hey, if I had in my pocket and what my wife pays in taxes, if like, if we had all the money that we pay in taxes, we'd be sitting on some pretty good coin. You know, so, oh, so yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Death and taxes, as they say. But uh, when you think about the really bad things that your government does with your hard earned money, you can understand yeah. why people would be upset with it. But 
Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, I wish all of us would just stop paying taxes. If everyone in America stopped paying taxes, that would get the government's attention real fast. I just have to convince enough people. Well, the, well, I mean, an argument can be made that we're paying taxes 24 seven because we pay taxes on our electricity. We pay taxes on our cell phone bill. We pay taxes on our internet bill. We pay taxes yeah. to register our car. We pay taxes on our house that we already own in the form of property tax. We pay the gas, yeah. we pay the gasoline tax every time we get gas. So if you uh, smoke uh, and you drink alcohol, you're paying taxes. So yeah, we pay a lot of taxes. Now, this is Holy Week. This is the first night of Passover. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And let's let's just talk about it briefly and then celebrate the fact that he was resurrected because Easter yes. is on Sunday. And a lot of us people that aren't super, super religious or go to church on a regular basis, we still celebrate Easter. And yeah. I, and I find that this to be tremendous very interesting. Day. I have always celebrated Easter as far back as I can remember. Easter was always a big deal in our family. Now, my dad was raised in an extremely religious family, but he was not. But my grandmother and all my aunts, big time religious. So uh, anyway, just just interesting sidebar there. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all I think we should all celebrate what's coming. Uh, I did call my my friend Bruce today. Hadn't talked to him in a long time. I've, I went to temple with him uh, for his mom's funeral, and I've always used to pick him up uh, because he doesn't really drive and probably shouldn't be driving. And uh, I'd always pick him up and bring him to the state house on the day when they when they light the menorah out in front of the uh, for Hanukkah when they light the the menorah for the first day of Hanukkah in front of the state house. Yeah. So I'd always bring him to that. But I was Passover. Uh, and I asked my wife if she'd heard from him recently. She said, no, you probably ought to call him. I said, well, I said, well, tomorrow Passover starts. I'll give him a call today and see if he answers his phone. He answered his phone. He was very happy that I called him. You know, I, you know we talked about Passover a little bit, and we're going to get together hopefully this weekend before Easter. But, uh, so so give us, uh, give us a, a little bit of your thoughts on crucifixion leading up to the resurrection. So in the Catholic Church and in the orthodox church although they call it something slightly different uh we refer to it as the the sacred triduum right and there's this whole debate people always talk about well what's more important easter or christmas and i think from a theological perspective the answer is of course easter because if christ didn't have to die and then be resurrected on the third day for our sins then he would never have had to come to the earth in the first place so there would never had to have been a christmas so that's my short answer there. But, but the, the story of the Passover is really interesting because when you read the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament, aside from deeper, you know, you could delve into some of the prophecies and stuff and learn about our modern day. But the biggest overarching story of the Old Testament is sort of a buildup for, to the crescendo of Christ and the Paschal mystery, right? The, the three days of, you know, the, the Passover starting on Thursday night. And then the passion on Friday and then the, the solid day in repose in the tomb, which we know 
as Christians that he was actually not there. He was down in Gehenna helping release people from hell or from purgatory, whatever you want to call it, you know, good people who had died before and then, you know, helping them, saving them because he opened the gates of heaven and then risen on the third day. But the, the thing I like to talk about um, on Good Friday, right, the passion that a lot of people don't think about is it was a really intense thing that happened because this is right in the middle of the Passover ceremony, right? They had just celebrated their Passover. So people were sort of in this in-between space, supposed to be focusing on religious festivities and sacrifices happening in the temple. And just on a side note, actually, the Passover that the, the Jewish people celebrate today is nothing like the Passover that Christ would have celebrated at the time. There are elements of the, the, the feast that they have that are similar to what Christ would have done. But again, because they don't have the temple, they can't do all the sacrifices that they would have done during the time of Christ, which is key because Christ is the sacrificial lamb, right? So um, have you ever seen the movie The Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? Yes, I have. So, so that movie is based off of private revelation to... She's not a saint. She's blessed, right? There, there are different stages in the Catholic Church before you become a saint. She's a blessed and Catherine Emmerich. And she had these visions. Uh, I mentioned earlier locution, right? A locution is sort of like a, an, a message from God that comes in an auditory form typically, but you can have also visions and whatnot. Uh, but she was having locutions about the passion of Christ or about Christ's life. And so when she described Christ's passion, it was something that the church had never really heard or thought about before. And it was this visceral, intense thing. And the thing that she really wanted to mention that she made really, she kept on bringing up to people was that because Christ was perfect and did not suffer sin like we did, he had a perfect body. And so he felt everything, but he couldn't pass out because that response was a result of the fall because we had a broken body. We couldn't take as much, but because he had a perfect body, he felt every ounce of pain, every ounce of suffering that entire time. And the passion of the Christ, the movie by Mel Gibson does an excellent job of showing that. But then, so you have this happening and you have this turnover of the, the Pharisees, right? We talked about them earlier. They turn Christ over using the high priest, right? At the time, who was also a Pharisee and they, they turn him over to Romans because they don't want to be sort of responsible for killing this Christ figure because they're, they were actually on the fence. They weren't sure about this guy. They thought maybe he was a false prophet. Maybe he was the Messiah. They weren't sure, but their hearts were hardened. And eventually they decided, no, no, we're going to take this guy out. We can't have him. He's not the Messiah because they believed that the Messiah was going to be this David-like figure where he was going to come in on a horse with a sword and lead an army against the Romans and just free all of Israel. And that's not what God had in mind. God wanted to free humanity from sin through the Catholic Church or through Christianity, but through through the, the church and free all of us. And it was necessary that he die on the cross at that particular time to save all of humanity conquer death and then he was put in the tomb and then early on that third day which that's always confused me because we say it's three days but really it's like 
two and a half, but he, uh, he gets resurrected and then he's with them, of course, up until the feast of Pentecost, which is when the Holy spirit came down, but that's another deal. But that whole story is the story of Christian salvation in a nutshell. And it's super important too. If you read the gospel of Matthew, he does a really good job because the gospel of Matthew is basically a gospel written to the Jewish people saying, look, here's all the different things that Christ is fulfilling. And that's sort of the crescendo that Matthew writes about is that Christ's passion sequence is a fulfillment of the Exodus. It's a fulfillment of all the promises made to the Jewish people. I also learned that when we talk about Jesus in the Last Supper, that was actually a Passover Seder that he was having with his apostles, correct? Yes, so that was last, a Seder meal. So the Last Supper was Passover. Yeah. He was celebrating yeah, Passover. It was, yeah. It's also where we get the institution, the Catholic Church refers to the institution of the Eucharist. It was the first Mass ever celebrated on Earth was the Passover meal. Yeah, I find that uh, that was just something I found out recently, which shows you how little I know about it, but... You know, I'm I'm pretty intent on learning more about it going forward because the more I think about that, and what do you call it when you get a verbal message from God? A locution. All right, so let me ask you this. Now, I've talked to Anonymous Sean about this. There are so many different versions of the Bible. And, of course, I'm very interested in the book of Enoch, the Apocrypha, and all these other books that... King Henry VIII had excluded from the King James Bible. And another interesting fact, when you were talking about Martin Luther, are you saying that he excluded any of the books of the Old Testament that were translated from Greek? Yes, uh, any books that came from Greek. So he was looking at texts, and the oldest texts, in his mind, had to be in the Hebrew Mm-hmm. And if the oldest text was Greek, then he would remove it. So, for example, you mentioned the Hanukkah and lighting the menorah. Well, in most uh, King James versions of the Bible, or most Christian Bibles, right, the book of Maccabees 1 and 2 are not in their Bible because those books weren't in Hebrew, they were in Greek. And, of course, part of the reason why is because the Maccabees were fighting against Greeks. Alexander had just blown through all of Asia Minor, and it was one of his governors, and he was persecuting the Jews, making them eat um, pork and stuff. And the Maccabees, who were of the tribe of Judah, were uh, saying, no, we're not going to do that, and they were actually martyred. And so that's sort of what the celebration of Hanukkah represents. It's a celebration of, of their sacrifice for the Jewish people. But yeah, he omitted seven books for that reason, you were going to ask a question about the different versions of the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Well, my question to you is, now I understand that the Catholic Church has their own version of the Bible. Could you kind of clarify that a little bit? In, in what, uh, what If somebody was interested in learning more about Christianity, which Bible would you recommend? So, I like... There's lots of different translations, but I think the best translation would be the the Dewey Rames translation. Uh, I'll have to pull that up real quickly to see how it's spelled. I can't spell off the top of my head, but that's the most faithful translation from the Vulgate, which was the Latin translation, right? And and then the Bible game, it's all about translations. Whose translation is the best translation? 
But the Bible itself, as comprised as we see it today, is actually a result of the Catholic Church again. Uh, they got together at, I want to say it was the Council of Ephesus, the, the, the first Council of Ephesus. So in early church history, and by the way, early church history, um, so when, when Catholics or Orthodox Christians refer to the church fathers, you know, that's everything from the Acts of the Apostles, so anything to do with the Apostles, all the way up until about the year 180 AD. That's a part of the Christian schema. So anyone who is not a Catholic Christian, who doesn't like want to be a part of the, you know, Catholicism or Orthodoxy, they still have that in their heritage because it's in the New Testament and it's a part of, it's part of their schema. It's part of their thing. So I would recommend that anyone look at those early church fathers, you know, and, and like, like Polycarp and uh, Ignatius of Antioch and, and these different early church fathers. But anyway, going back to the Bible, Pope St. Gregory the Great or Gregory of Nyssa, as he's known to the Orthodox, was really the first pope who presided over that council. I believe it was Ephesus. I'm, I may be wrong. The Council of Ephes- who, Ephesus? I believe. I believe that was the council. Uh, presided over it, and that's really where they compiled all the books, and they looked at all the different versions, and they got them all together, and it's something Gregory had already been working on, and they, they ratified it. They said, okay, this is the sacred scripture as dictated to us by the Holy Spirit, right? Because all scripture is from the Holy Spirit using humanity to write it. This is what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. And so that is the, the origin of, of what books are in the Bible. And then any deviation from that later on is just books being omitted from the Bible, so the Catholic Bible, historically speaking, is the most complete Bible because it has all the books in its originality at the Council of Ephesus. Later on, books were removed. I guess if you want to count the Book of Mormon as a Bible in and of itself, then I guess you could count the, the Book of Mormon as additions to the Bible. But everything else is sort of removed. And so you have these three categories of, of books you have sacred writ, which is anything in the Bible. Then you have the Apocrypha, which are books that church says, no, these are good books. You can read these. We recommend that you read them, but they're not. we don't believe that they're directly related to salvation history, and they don't really hold dogmatic teachings, and they're not really a part of necessary for salvation uh, guidance from the Holy Spirit, but they're still good. So you have in that, the, the book of Enoch 1 and 2, or, for example, are Apocrypha. But the church recommends that you read it, of course, carefully. And then they have this third category of books, which these are books where, and it doesn't have official title, but they're basically Apocrypha that it's not recommended that you read, that they're not really important, and they're not spiritually helpful. And that category might be the, um, the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Judas, right? But interestingly, there is one Bible that is ratified by the church, that the Catholic and Orthodox churches respectively both accept that has extra books. It has the books of Enoch 1 and 2, and that's the Ethiopian or Eritrean. I Don't ask me how to spell that. It's a complicated Greek word. It starts with E-U. 
but uh, we call them the Ethiopian Rite, or the the Copts would call them, or the Orthodox Church would call them the Ethiopian Orthodox. It's the same thing. They have the books of Enoch, and that's the reason why they have the book of Enoch is because in their liturgical tradition, they were already reading and incorporating the books of Enoch in their worship. And so it was allowed. But the rest of Christianity had the the books that were ratified by the Council of Ephesus. And the reason why the, the Ethiopians had the book of Enoch 1 and 2 is because the Ethiopians actually draw their lineage to strong Jewish ties. There was a, a, a lot of Jews that were Ethiopian, going back to Solomon. When I was researching different Bibles because I wanted to buy one, I had discovered that... Uh, that the Ethiopian Bible did have the Apocrypha in it. So uh, when I go to, you know, purchase one or whatever, I might be looking into that one. But I'm going to like, uh, I I want you to send me uh, any links that you have that are associated with any of the Catholic writings in in the Catholic Bible or whatever and everything like that. Now, have you ever heard uh, the theory that the Ark of the Covenant was actually stashed in the Ethiopian church? I have heard that, and a part of me wants to believe it just because I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones, but the Ethiopian church is very, very clever because they evaded persecution for a long time by building their churches into the ground out of, like, sheer rock. It's actually really, really cool. If you ever get a chance to go there to see these ancient churches, I've seen it's the, literally I've like seen when you look pictures. across the horizon, it's flat, and then you get up to where the, the church is, and they had dug a hole out of the bedrock down into this place. And so I think that's sort of where that mythology or mythos came from about the, the Ark of the Covenant being there. I don't know. I think the Ark of the Covenant might have been destroyed by the Romans. The Romans did a lot of bad things. They destroyed the uh, Library of Alexandria, which I think is probably the greatest atrocity of the ancient world. Yeah. You know, there was also another theory that uh, that's running around and has been running around for years that, that the Romans uh, did burn down the Library of Alexandria, but they took yeah. but they took a lot of the books out that they didn't want people to read. That those are stashed in the Vatican. Yeah, you hear about this all the time. I don't know how I feel about that because the the church is very interesting in this regard. Um, because when you read the writings of the popes and the saints and the stuff, they very much anti secrecy, partially because Satan himself loves secrecy, right? Truth is always, always the best option in the church's eyes. And so does the Vatican have this huge archive of books? Yes, absolutely. Why doesn't it let people have access to all of those? Well, some of those books in there are, quite frankly, books that could potentially make you possessed by just reading them. Apparently, you know, you talk to exorcists and that's what they'll say. They have, you know, exorcists are some of the only people in the church who have access to like almost all of the, the Vatican archives along with bishops and cardinals and stuff. But I think, yeah, I think there are books from uh, the library of Alexandria that are there and uh, why they would be secret. I, that's a mystery to me. I would like to trust the church in her wisdom, but I also know that the church is a human entity. And this is the other thing that people forget is that yes, the Catholic church 
has all his powers and has all these things and has this prestige, right? Like I said earlier, a lot of people consider it the oldest brother of the Christianity and people look to us uh, for response and help and things. And that's one of those areas where you have to say, well, but we're still human <laughs> and to err is human as they say. And we may be the bridegroom of Christ, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. So yeah, I think that the, there are, books from the library of alexandria there definitely all i know is that it makes for an awesome conspiracy and, and yes and with that nate i want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the wicked planet and i want to get you back on i'd like to have you come on uh frequently because uh sean and i uh and buckley's opening up to it a little bit I uh, want to talk more about some of the religious conspiracies, maybe even demystifying what is the Catholic Church, which has its own bags and bags full of conspiracy associated to it. And, oh yeah, and I would love to Tons. get in, I would love to get into talking about uh, uh, Satanist possessions in uh, exorcisms something I would uh, that I'm interested in. I'd like to talk more about uh, the hierarchy of the church and how it's broke up to where we hear about you got the white pope, you have the black pope, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. Again, yeah. I, I feel as though in coming, some of the emails that we've had back and forth and some of the chats we've had that you are the perfect guy to come on the Wicked Planet to be our religious... What do you call that? The, the, the expert. The, uh, the to, envoy. Yeah. To have somebody come on uh, that grew up in the Catholic Church that's nearly became a priest, like close to that, right? I mean, as you said. Yeah, that you, yeah you, I was on the path. Yeah, you were on the path for priesthood, uh, which is super interesting to me. And how you Actually, I could still become a priest. But that's a story for another time. Now, did you say that you were married? Are you currently married? Yes, I'm currently married. Oh, and I can still become a priest. I know this is radical and new to a lot of people. I probably just blew a lot of people's minds. I just say I can't become a priest in the Catholic, in the the Western Catholic Church or the Latin Rite or the Roman Rite, but I can become a priest in the Byzantine Rites. So that's just, we'll just leave it at that and people can just think about it and and have their heads blown. Another quick fact to it I just want to blow out (laughs) before, before we end this. When you talk about the Byzantine Catholics, right? Yeah. Just going back to ancient history. So the Emperor Constantine went to Constantinople, which was, you know, obviously named from him, which is modern day Istanbul, Turkey. And that was the second seat of power for the Roman Empire. So it would make sense. So it makes sense that Catholicism would have been deeply enrooted in what is now Turkey. Right? Uh, yes. Way back in those times. Another interesting historical story we could talk about at a later date. So, so Nate, thank you. Thank you for coming on to Wicked Planet. I want you to enjoy your holy week. And, uh, and I'm going to do the same on my end. And, uh, and I hope. Yeah, to, I'll be praying for you. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I hope to talk to you real soon. Yeah. If I could just make one more plug. Sorry, I don't have any socials or anything to plug. I'm not on social media. I never was into that. But I would just like to encourage people, if they're skeptical about the Catholic Church, just to look up, just to to whet people's appetites, whatever. Read about 
the Second Vatican Council and how liberalism uh, sort of took hold of the church. And that's where things started changing, going sideways. And that's where a lot of people see a lot of deviation in the church. And read about the church and its sordid history with Freemasonry because it's actually, it used to be you would be excommunicated if you became a Freemason and you were a Catholic. The church would say, no, you can't be, do that. And uh, there is a, a Freemasons did infiltrate the Roman Curia, right? The highest authorities of the Catholic Church. I believe that and changed some things around. So that's one thing to look into. And the other thing I want people to really think about looking into is um, the apparitions at Fatima. And there's some prophecies in recent years from Fatima, from Our Lady of Good Success, Our Lady of Akita that really are pertinent to what's going on in the world right now and sort of shed some light on some things that might be a little bit confusing, but that directly pertain, I believe, to the book of the apocalypse and to what people, I think, erroneously classify as the end times. I think they're just a time of tribulation. We don't know when the end is going to be. But anyway, I just really recommend people look at Fatima and Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of Akita. And I'll send you some links to those too, Ron. That would be awesome. That would be awesome because that's that's something I'm super interested. I'm familiar with the with the apparition of Fatima. Very very interesting story. Okay, Nate, I want to thank you again for joining uh, joining me on the Wicked Planet. Yeah, Ron. Great. God bless you, and I, I'd love to do this again. And we will do that very soon. Good night, Nate. Good night, Ron.